Hi, I'm Mark Anielski, the host of the Economy Wellbeing Podcast. My guest today is Ben Johnson, who interviewed me for a previous show for his podcast called Peripheral Thinking. Ben leads a community of fellow agitators, innovators, and entrepreneurs creating projects and businesses. He co-owns online platforms and a community called Shangri Live. He lives, writes, and talks about money at Waking Up to Money, and has created and sold businesses, including experience, design, and innovation firm called Free State, which was sold to Hassel. He's an active investor, advisor, teacher, and talker. He writes books and blogs, he coaches, and he consults. Check out his book, an ebook called Buddha on the Board, an ongoing play with the question, if the Buddha was on your company board, what it would do, why and how. His new podcast called Peripheral Thinking is an inspiration and resource for the community he works with in England. It's a place to feed curiosity and spark energetic conversation where ancient wisdom, contemporary science, and all in between might fuse and bubble. He's an active investor, advisor, teacher, and talker, father, husband, and coach, and consults businesses. Ben and I have a lively conversation about the subject of why do we work and the relationship we have with money. Enjoy this lively conversation with Ben Johnson. Thanks for listening. So welcome, Ben Johnson, to uh, the Economics of Wellbeing podcast. You were my, actually, I think I was your guest uh, a few days ago, and uh, you you prodded me with all kinds of questions about money. But So tell, tell us about who you are. You've got this uh, peripheral thinking podcast. Uh, mm-hmm. You're an amazing human being. You're an entrepreneur, business guy. You're in the UK. Uh, and uh, you're obsessed with the... Uh, with, with the topic of money, I would say obsessed or interested as much as I've been in my mm. life. And I thought we would, we would talk about um, what, what you're seeing, what you're experiencing from the podcast you, and the conversation about money you've been having. And, and mm-hmm. I think one of the, I don't think it was you, but one of the uh, people I was alerted to was the economist, German economist, uh, Richard Werner, who uh, mm. I think was the first actually uh, academic to, do a forensic inquiry into loan origination by banks, um, the mm-hmm. process, which I always thought was was possible to, to forensically audit, but no one had ever done it. And so mm-hmm. Werner finally proves, and the Bank of England finally agreed, yes, 97% of the money that we call money was created by banks, which issue loans. So mm-hmm. uh, anyways, that that's a hope for another subject, and I'm hoping to get Richard Werner uh, at some point to talk about his insights. So Tell us a bit about mm. you and uh, what gets you up in the morning and gets you all fired up other than your children and your pets. Yeah, they they definitely do the work of getting you up in the morning. Uh, so so that bit's taken care of. Yeah, but I, but we, we can also reflect on your your now 10-year-old son, I think when he was four, and, and, and he That's asked right. you the, the penultimate question, Dad, why? I think, Dad, why do you work? Uh, yeah, absolutely. My daughters would say, what do you do, Dad? And I say... Uh, I was working with the Inuit. Uh, my daughter was five at the time, and I called home from Iqaluit from the Arctic, and she says, "Dad, I don't understand. What do you actually do?" I said, "I sell ideas for money." <laughs> <laughs> she said, "As wise as a five-year-old, don't they have their own ideas?" <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's kind of brilliant on sort of many levels, because actually, in, in, in a sense, actually, I really sort of um, sort of struggle with and in a way hide from that. What do you do question? Uh, and uh, I think probably for a kind of few reasons. One, so I have kind of always been involved with sort of setting up companies so I have a sort of entrepreneurial background. But actually, over the last probably 15 or so years, there or thereabouts. So I guess my the, the kind of my entrepreneurial drive for a long time um, probably was actually kind of rooted in, in quite a lot of anxiety, actually, or a lot of insecurity. Like wow. the kind of work, the quest was to succeed, to kind of make a stamp, to, you know, for sure, kind of money was kind of part of that. And um 
kind of status and identity. And so I think actually uh, I was sort of on a, and have been on a sort of inadvertent sort of journey then over kind of 15 years, uh, which you probably would sort of, you know, you would sensibly talk about as a kind of journey really to kind of a genuine wealth point yeah uh, as you would sort of you would kind of acknowledge and you would sort of think I didn't have that language at the time but there was a kind of there was a sort of a number of things which happened in my sort of entrepreneurial life which were these kind of revealing moments one the moment with my son which I'll, I'll kind of mention uh I'll talk about shortly in a in a sec the other was in the in the last sort of proper business that I had which was really a sort of design business we worked with um, kind of universities, airlines, airports, uh, big office complexes. And it's just sort of what it, what is called these days as experience design. So, you know, what are the things that you do to attract people to come? Particularly, you think about this on a university campus these days, you know, universities, like everything else, is a business. How do I get more, you know, how do I get the students to come? How do I get them to want to spend more time on campus, enjoy the campus experience more so they give us a better score on the students? student surveys so we do better and all of these kind of things so they would work with businesses like mine to work out how do we kind of how do we attract students to campus and really get them to stay for longer and so spend more is the subtext to to all of that mm. um and there was a there was a point sort of about six seven years into running that business and i had been involved with other ones before that where we won a project which was um the kind of equivalent in size to our previous six years turnover. So this one huge wow. thing. And there was a real clear moment for me, which was a, a kind of realization, but I didn't, I was, I acknowledged somewhere, but I didn't really act on. And there was a kind of clear like a voice. It was like, actually, what am I doing now? You know, in a way, <laughs> what, what am I doing now? Uh, and, and I don't mean that in the sense of, it was just an abundant kind of riches that I didn't need to work. It was like somehow that thing that I'd always been chasing, striving for, somehow was kind of revealed as nothing or met. I don't know, one of yeah. those kind of two things. So there was this kind of point where I was then thinking, hold on, what am I, what, what, you know, what am I, what have I been chasing for? Because my kind of, like I said, my work life for that was very, very kind of driven quite intense, quite demanding then of the sort of people around me. But as a consequence of that, also quite, tight quite stressful and actually in many respects quite sort of unpleasant really if I kind of look back on it uh, <laughs> via the kind of lens of, of kind of from from a little bit beyond so there, there was that as kind of one event not long after that I also had um, the first of my children were born so my son was born mm. uh, and that also kind of had a, a kind of real sort oh, of yeah. uh, kind of reframing effect as, as you were kind of you would well know uh, and so these kind of things kind of building, actually. And then a few years after that, I actually sort of around a similar time, I became kind of uh, kind of curious about and interested in Buddhism. So I gone. I live in uh, Brighton on the south coast of the UK. And, you know, one dark sort of October night, I went to try the introductory to Buddha, introduction <laughs> to Buddhism course. And dark the Brighton and stormy Buddhism night. It, it was a dark and stormy night. You were uh, and sort of spent... in yoga and you and the Buddha came to you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so kind of had a uh, kind of eight weeks of sort of introduction around that. And again, that kind of just sort of, I think there was something around um, kind of learning to meditate, essentially the practice of meditation, whatever you know that is for you, whether that's contemplation, meditation, prayer. I think these things are all actually, you know, kind of very, very similar. Uh, and there was, again, you know, the, the kind of the, the sort of reflective space that came as a consequence of, of meditating. And also, in a way, there was something I felt quite kind of powerful about meditating. I wasn't really sure what it was, but I definitely felt there was something quite kind of powerful in it. So there's all of these sort of things happening at the same sort of time. I then did a course uh, which I, I mentioned to you previously with a, with a Buddhist teacher, which was an online course. And it was called Work Sex money dharma so which is the kind of the, the giant objects of our life via the lens via a buddhist lens via a kind of right. learning, kind of dharma as kind of learning dharma as the kind of the, the kind of the, the learning journey that they sort of talk about in a kind of buddhist circles and um so you know it's about kind of work the work that you do and uh, kind of sex and the relationships that you have and money and uh, the money segment was started by the teacher you know really leaning into the camera and all the kind of power of doing this on video kind of you know said if I, if I say to the camera, money, 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 what comes up for you? 
And, and huge amounts sort of came up for me, you know, with then the exploration around that, my kind of feelings around money, how kind of money was sort of really linked to sort of identity and uh, kind of safety and security and the stories which are associated to it from kind of growing up and are inherited kind of money story baggage from kind of family. And so this kind of whole sort of sequence of things, you know, the moment with the company, children being born, the the kind of the this sort of course was kind of building over a kind of number of years and uh a, a kind of another sort of key point in that that you were kind of making reference to was my uh, son who at the time was four he hadn't yet started school uh, and i remember him saying to me and so i i've been you know always at home quite a lot even so when they were little i got an office here so even when i was running my company i was sort of around a lot anyway so it's great to lots of time for for conversation and sort of chat with the small people of our lives and i remember him him saying to me one day you know daddy why do you work <laughs> and it was just i was completely stumped actually because i kind of realized that actually the default response is well you work for money uh that's the, the kind <laughs> of, of that's the that's the sort of the the kind of cultural idea that we inherit you work for money yeah and it was a kind of realization i guess as a sort of sort of um you know the cumulative effect of all of the, those kind of then several years of sort of reflection and inquiry and space and kind of learning was a kind of really kind of understanding that actually we work for reasons of wellness we work for reasons of connection uh, we work to learn we learn we, we work to as a kind of place to kind of be seen and be heard and contribute yeah. uh-huh. and all of these sorts of things but i was kind of really really conscious actually that they i, I sort of felt like I had access to that insight, but really only a little bit accidentally and a little bit as a consequence of spending kind of three, four, five years plus in quite a sort of introspective period. And when I kind of ask lots of other people, why do you work? You know, the default, particularly in the kind of world that kind of we live in here, certainly not with your your Inuit friends who would have a a much better idea to sell back to us about this, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it's it's this kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the idea that basically people work for money um and yeah just how kind of limiting and um kind of revealing that is so yeah so i guess all the way back to your question around kind of what i do i kind of have avoided that question a little bit because actually i think a lot of what i do is just kind of learning how to live as you know by your kind of language in a place of genuine wealth and then where i can sort of contribute and work with you know my working life has been very much in the entrepreneurial space so i do do a lot with kind of entrepreneurs i also have kind of other business i'm involved with a a platform that uh, offers meditation courses and so that's a really interesting kind of business to be part of because actually we run that almost exclusively on donations Uh, and so how you kind of run a business which is kind of built on donations has been a whole other sort of learning experience and then I also do things around money and what the entrepreneur's feeling is around money understanding is around money there was a a, in fact my father-in-law who also had a business I remember him saying kind of many years ago, there's only two problems in a business, people and money. Uh, But I think if you ask him what he meant by money, it would be very different to what we were talking about. Anyway, that's a very kind of long and rambling response to the question of what I do or don't do. So you tell your 10-year-old now that you uh, lead business people in uh, meditating on their relationship with money, the... Would that be because it's a very, you know, like you, I, it was actually, I think it was two years ago now, just before COVID when I, when I would stop to think, did I, have I really enjoyed everything I've done in the last 35 years of work? Like, honestly, (laughs) can I honestly Mm -hmm. say every project I ever took on was, and I'm like, actually not really. Would I have Mm -hmm. done things differently? Probably not. You know, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. I'm an economist and I could have spent my life in prayer when, mm-hmm. you know, when I thought I was being called to that life in Jerusalem in 92, mm-hmm. but in, in, in reality, th- that probably wouldn't have been satisfying either. Mm-hmm. Though it'd be fun to make mead and beer and, and <laughs> yeah, strong spirits in some monastery in Austria or mm-hmm. somewhere else in Greece and, yeah but um but it is interesting so my question for you is where let's explore the roots of the anxiety Mm. that that 
took hold in their hearts and their minds uh, at the youngest possible age, like in your experience and reflecting on our, our respective parents or upbringing in this culture, mm -hmm. you know, I, I was raised by a German immigrant father who survived World War II, you know, as a 10 year old and saw the horrors of war and came here to Canada to, right. With the aspiration of a, a better life. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. And the conversation always is, are, do you have a lot of work? And uh, how's <laughs> yeah. work? Are you busy? Like, I'm like, I have fantastic clients. Uh, they love mm -hmm. me. I love them. And it's taken me 40 years to get there. But yeah, here I am. Mm -hmm. I started with PwC, Coopers and Librand. And I thought, mm -hmm. oh, I'm going to be, you know, I could be an auditor. Sure. You know, and that quickly ended when you're young, 21 years of age. But that sort of unpacking the, you know, that roots of the anxiety of money, which has been mm -hmm. very much part of my life too. I was not free of this anxiety for many years. You know, I hated mm -hmm. having a mortgage or debt and we were always taught to save. That was, you know, saving was a, a good discipline to be frugal was noble. Right. Mm -hmm. But yet there's that anxiety, like it or not, I still have to make money to put mm -hmm, bread on the mm -hmm. table, to pay the mortgage. And that constant pressure and anxiety is common to all of us. None of us seem to be able to escape that. Even if you're mm -hmm. a Buddhist monk, you still got to go and pander for like donations, mm -hmm. right? You're not yeah. living on <laughs> you know, love and, and air, mm -hmm. you know? So mm. what, what, what's, what's your reflection on the roots of that anxiety and how mm. now you feel you're maybe overcoming that in response to your son's question about work and working mm. for money? Yeah. Um, so I think my, so the, the kind of stories that I inherited, so you were kind of talking about, about yours, the stories that I inherited were, so my dad uh, was, was, was an entrepreneur too. He had, he had a business right. and uh, you know, he, um, he would be up at sort of five in the morning doing work. And uh, when we would sort of stay with him on the weekend, quite often, they would be working all weekend. We'd go to the office. There were definitely quite a few times where my brother and I would sleep and would have slept in the office, <laughs> in the office. while they were working through the night. And, wow. you know, for us, like as a whatever, six, seven, eight, nine year old, it was actually quite an adventure. And they had, it was always kind of, you know, lots of chocolate bars in the office because they did oh. kind of research. There was all, so it was always quite an adventure. But clearly the story that I was kind of picking up, which was kind of relating to kind of work and money is work is hard. Yeah. And work is all the time, right? right. <laughs> it's yeah. hard yeah. and it's all the time. And there's chocolate. Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's hard. It's all the time and you get chocolate. <laughs> you get chocolate in return. Because <laughs> you don't actually have to do anything but sleep in my office and eat chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> I like this future. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, I, you know, so, so I think I think definitely the, the kind of work is hard, work is intense was definitely... Yeah. Uh, was a kind of big sort of um, kind of was written into my the, the kind of sort of stories I had. Also, um, my parents uh, were divorced, so there was there was there was friction around the kind of money, and so there's definitely there was definitely a kind of remembering of that, and so there was a kind of uh, a sort of there was always some sort of conflict around money was was a, a kind of association that there was sort of conflict around money sure. and also uh my and so then kind of with grandparents going things so my I, i'm half american half 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 english so my, on my mum's side i'm american and my uh so my maternal grandfather um was a was a venture capitalist he was kind of involved with with business and very kind of commercial so of that sort of kind of stereotypical sort of ilk but my uh, my paternal grandfather and grandparents was a, was a kind of doctor was very kind of socially minded was involved with setting up the uh, health service here in the UK, so these kind of very very kind of conflicting sort of ideas and story or well, not conflicting contrasting sort of stories. Right, right. So, you know, I think um, there was this idea of kind of like I said, workers kind of workers hard, workers struggle, workers kind of effort, but also then kind of played into things around money. Money was kind of conflict. Money was 
sort of complicated. It was difficult because it was then also linked to kind of familial relationships and these quite contrasting kind of ideas of, you know, on the, on the kind of on the one side, money and commerce and kind of business and investing. And then on the other side, you know, money, not important. It's about kind of sort of social work and endeavor. And actually, so there's a lot of kind of quite sort of contrasting, mm. um, sort of occasionally conflicting ideas and stories in there. Mm. Interesting. So, wow. So in that milieu of uh, how old were you when your parents divorced? I was seven. Ah, interesting. I would think that that seven, eight year age bracket is an inflection point, I think, in mm. our understanding of who we actually are yeah and and we at least i remember sort of being suddenly aware that i was not a child i wouldn't even say i wasn't a child anymore but suddenly i'm my awareness changed yeah uh, and i've started to think like an adult or th- anyways it's fascinating and because so up to the age of seven money seems like irrelevant it's like you know mm-hmm. you're, you're playing it's just, you know, it's, it's preschool. It's mm-hmm. yeah. Just, just play, enjoy. Um, and so, and, and I think the hard part is we're, we're all born into this anxiety. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I reflect on the words, um, you know, creditors versus debtors. We're actually, we're not debtors. We're actually creators. We're creditors. Mm-hmm. We're entrepreneurs. And, yeah. our, and, and yet the money system uh, it's our design, but it actually creates, um, and we, we talked about the last time, it creates this anxiety. Uh, it's like there's a, an imposed artificial scarcity built into the money system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you say, yeah. well, who, but who who decided, who, who controls this money system? Well, mm-hmm. in a sense, we do, but we also know that the banks create the money through loans. And so we mm-hmm. gave them a corporate license to do that. And we said, we'll trust you. You'll, 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 you'll make sure we're good credit rating and we'll, we're good. We have good business plans and all that. And it seems all rational. And yet, mm-hmm. and yet when you look at it at a macro level, there's an imposed constraint an artificiality versus an actually the truth of abundance, which is what you realize mm-hmm. before you're eight, nine or 10. Mm-hmm. your lived reality was more living in a place of abundance of love. Yeah. And all of that changes shifts and we spend the rest of our life mm. living in this constrained world where anxiety is constantly at the wolf of the door. Yeah. Saying if I, if I don't get that contract, if that client doesn't like me, how am I going to sleep peacefully? How am I going to, I, I'm going to be in a place of a conflict with my spouse with mm-hmm. so so when i look at the roots of all of the problems in society i can point back to the this artificial constrained thing called money mm-hmm. now if it was mm-hmm. yet if it was super abundant we, we would also have problems mm-hmm. so have you thought about like how in the kind of notion of design like mm-hmm. and i've given this a lot of thought it's like how do you create without being totally ridiculous utopian like mm-hmm. a system in which money is always sufficient mm. in its liquidity and volume to oxygenate yeah. what you're doing now like mm. you have a passion you okay you have a love of meditation buddhism and you mm. and you're actually a therapist for <laughs> the business people who are still caught in the anxiety squirrel cage of capital mm. yeah so uh, yeah, no, that's a really good question. Actually, two two things come to mind. Uh, one, a uh, sort of unrelated, uh, actually, a, a fellow Canadian. Uh, there's a, an anthropologist that I uh, read a lot, a guy called Wade Davis. I don't know if yeah, you yeah, know of I... Wade Davis. So super inspiring guy. In fact, uh, so he wrote a book uh, called The Wayfinders, uh, yes. which was about how ancient uh, wisdom. Is, I can't remember the subtitle. Yeah, Something I, along I, the lines. I read, you know the I read one? Wayfinders. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So fantastic. And one of the reasons that that book really kind of appealed to me is because it, you know, it kind of lays bare, let makes clear to your point around um, debtors or, or debtors or, or creditors, the idea of creditors as creators. And of course, we all have 
creative potential that is our birthright you know us as the the, the human engine yeah yeah, you know the the kind of in the uh kind of human sort of ingenious sort of um kind of you know our ability to create our ability to imagine our ability to kind of do of course just kind of it, it kind of bleeds through us really and a lot of what you're sort of talking about the fear the scarcity all of that just all it does is it serves to suppress that and so i think one of the things for me, the reason I really like um, kind of Wade's book, the, all the writings around that, aside from the fact that he writes brilliantly well, is that kind of reminder, you know, since the birth of our kind of sort of time in that sort of sense, actually, you know, our ability to kind of rise up and solve the problems of our time, that, you know, that's what civilization has been, that's what civilization does. So in part, there is a kind of reminder to that. The, the second thing, um, which was actually uh, in a book that I read, uh, sort of may have shared the other day by a guy, I think he's called Peter Koenig, uh, who I think was a, a management consultant. Yeah. Um, but he, so he wrote this book, 30 Lies About Money. And um, in fact, that was the first time that I ever read anybody who was articulating what uh, we've gone on to talk about and you kind of shared much more on this idea that actually all money is just newly issued debt and so uh, it was it was a kind of it was a great great revealing book for me anyway there's a really useful exercise he has in the book where um he kind of lays bare this idea that uh you know is money kind of power or you know is money security and actually when i do kind of work with sort of groups of entrepreneurs or, or kind of business leaders, whatever, you know, if you go through the exercise of asking them what money means, you know, you get the same thing. Money is security, money is power, money is freedom, money is the ability to choose. Uh, and actually he, Peter Koenig has a really interesting kind of exercise in his book, which, which, which over the arc of the book actually uh, kind of reveals the idea that, of course, that money isn't power. Money isn't security. Money isn't anything. It's we are basically projecting power, security, safety. Yeah, Yeah, you know, so it's actually actually it in in it and of itself isn't the you know it isn't the security it isn't our ability to sleep well at night but of course it's what we sort of project onto it Uh, and so in terms of kind of my own practice which I guess is the extent to which if there is anything kind of useful and then the work that I might do with entrepreneurs around this kind of space I think well firstly uh, one other little point I think the entrepreneurial journey is in a way and kind of I know this is kind of language which kind of it's you know it is it is a bit like a spiritual journey because actually what entrepreneurs are doing is they are kind of birthing something in the world and all of you know, our kind of um, complications and curiosities and characteristics and personalities is all laid bare in the entrepreneurial journey. It can't not be, you know, That's the, right. the business that we create, the culture that we create is just an, is, is an expression of kind of who we are, really. Yeah. Uh, and so to your question around how I try and think kind of differently around it, I think, you know, again, it's kind of going back to what you kind of acknowledge you talk about as the sort of genuine wealth thing. So for like for me today, so it's later afternoon here. It's a, it's been a beautiful kind of winter day, clear blue sky, which which has been quite unusual for the last few weeks, where it's been very very wet. But today <laughs> is kind of cooler. The sun is shining. The sky is blue. Uh, I went for a swim with a friend of mine. So I live uh, by the sea, so cold, icy wow, swim nice. with a friend of mine. And we were sitting on the on the kind of beach afterwards, fully wrapped up, enjoying some feeling of sunshine. And you know, we were talking around a lot of these things. Actually, we were talking around. How a how kind of lucky, how kind of blessed we are to be able yeah. to sort of do that. But we're kind of sort of marinating in all of the other aspects of wealth that money that finance can't buy. And I think for me, you know, the more time that I kind of acknowledge and the more time I spend in those other aspects, the kind of weight and pull and power of the money bit actually just is turned down because the other aspects are turned up. So it's a kind of rebalancing, which kind of takes the attention and takes the focus, takes the pull away from well, the, the kind of the, the exclusive pull of kind of, of the, of the kind of money wealth bit. So just through kind of actively rebalancing how I live and how I try to live, it just, it, it kind of, it, it's a rebalance. And so it kind of, it takes some of that energy, some of that effort, some of that, some of that negative pull away. That's fascinating. Can I ask you, um, how old are you? I am 48. No, I'm not. I'm 49. <laughs> I'm now 49. So I, I would say, having now studied happiness, the science of well-being, mm. uh, the, the, the data consistently shows that uh, you're happiest before you're 11. 
uh-huh. uh, and and then you fall into this smiley face pattern and yeah. you bottom out around 44, 45, uh-huh. and then things get better. And you end right. up, if you live to a statistical age of 80, uh, mm-hmm. you're at 70, you're probably as happy as you were when you were 12. Mm. And is that true across cultures or is that? It, yes. Uh, right, right. Okay. So life is like a smiley face. Now, mm. so when I ask, like, how old are you? And you're like, you know what? I've, so at, at and you, we, we can literally, I can literally in a room go, I can, I can literally predict someone's age by what they're, how they're reflecting on money and their anxieties of their life. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they all laugh. I said, you're at the bottom of your happiness curve and everything <laughs> just looks better after this, right? You're swimming <laughs> in the sea, the sun is shining. Mm-hmm. And so, but one of the, one of the things I want to reflect on is that moment where you got that big contract, what was bigger than the mm. pre- any previous six years of operating. Yeah. I've had that experience too, where there's a freedom there as much as we want to say money's yes, we identify money as our anxiety and it, it drives us mm-hmm. crazy and you, it's difficult to transcend. But that moment when you had that sudden, mm. that money reflected a potential for freedom. And that and that's, has been my own experience saying, yeah wait a minute now that i've achieved this kind of i especially for 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 me it was like when we were mortgage-free when we had no mm-hmm. more debts and i mm-hmm. so I, you, know, you build a spreadsheet and you're like well, hang on a minute that means i don't have to work as many hours anymore mm-hmm. as a business person if i choose to i can mm-hmm. i could, yes we could now buy a bigger house we could buy more toys and, and mm-hmm. add on new debt nicer car but that's just going to put more debt back on the balance sheet and let's step back from that and then be free of so now we have all this discretionary time which is really the discretionary time relates to not needing to make as much money and have the debts to be paid and then Mm -hmm. there's like whoa there's a freedom mentally in that in that moment and is that what, you know, your kind of now inquiry into meditation, like did that big contract give you that sense of freedom in your mind or mm. what happened after that inflection point? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Um, I think in a way, and I, I mean, I don't know at, at the time for sure. It, so it, it did have a kind of positive financial effect, you know, yeah. it was a much, much bigger contract. So yeah. lots more money in the business, but of course the other thing that happens a little bit is, you know, then all of a sudden, all of a sudden the business then has more costs and all of those, the that's things right. that you, the thing that people do with money, you find yeah. a way of spending it. That's right. You have subcontractors and you got people, you yeah. got people though. <laughs> exactly. You know, so all of a sudden there was then much, much, much bigger team, but, but anyway, so there was equally much more, yeah. much more money, but it actually the, 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 the kind of thought that I was aware of, but wasn't paying attention, that was reluctant to pay attention to. And maybe it was just, it was just because of the kind of freedom thing was a, actually, what am I doing? What has been this relentless Mm. march that I've been on? You know, it it was almost like it revealed the kind of futility of that march. And maybe that is, Mm. could only have happened because there is a, there is an implicit thing around, the kind of feeling of sort of freedom and safety, whatever that it was, you know, that things calmed because it wasn't, there was a, a very particular moment. I remember after we, and I was sitting with my business partner and uh, we had sort of some of the team, we were talking about this project that was going to happen and it was right. So it was, I really do clearly remember we were sitting around the boardroom table and I just had this like, hold on, what am I doing? Uh, and it, and so maybe, maybe that was, only made possible quite likely because for a moment a lot of those perceived pressures had sort of had kind of receded because of the the kind of opportunity that that afforded mm. but the the kind of overriding feeling was uh, a kind of feeling that the kind of futility of that constant striving the effort of the constant striving it was that that was kind of revealed really interesting so on this theme of let's switch to Buddhism because I'm fast with you've probably know about Fritz uh, Schumacher, small is beautiful. 
I, uh, I do. It is on there. Yeah. yeah. And I've got the 25th anniversary edition of, which is lovely because he's got, it's all annotated by people who have been infected. Beautiful. Yeah. But so here's this stodgy British statistician economist who mm-hmm. goes to Burma, I think, and discovers Buddhist economics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, from your, like, uh, in, uh, from the prag- pragmatic, and I, I'm speaking about, you know, I've had the pleasure of meeting the Prime Minister of Bhutan. They have gross national mm. happiness. They're Buddhist, actually the only Buddhist kingdom planet. Met the King of Thailand's Buddhist, key Buddhist monk advisor uh, in New York. Anyways, uh, you know, Mato Ricard, the oh, Dalai yeah. Lamas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, met him personally mm-hmm. in New York. Anyways, all these. So, you know, I'm, I'm a Catholic. So I'm like, oh. What do the Buddhists have to teach us about money? What do you, what do you, mm. what do you say, Ben? What's your reflection on money in, in the Buddhist kind of? Yeah, genre? that's a good question. That's a good a good question. I think um, what do they have to teach us about money? I think in many ways, I think like in the sort of traditional Buddhist teachings, like I don't know that you know in the same way that Buddhists aren't really very good with anger. Right, that's true. Not, uh, not regular with anger, but of course we get angry, right? So you can't, you can't sort of ignore that fact. Uh, and in a sense, I think um, there's a little bit of a similar kind of thing around money. I don't know that they do teach actually. Well, certainly in terms of what I've kind of learned, I haven't sort of come across any really good sort of teachings. Although, like, so in sort of small is beautiful. I, I think one of the sort of general movements I've been on. Um, which you kind of will know a lot about, which I think sort of just implicitly talks to Buddhist ideas, is a spirit of interconnection, right? So right. Um, a kind of sort of a, the, the kind of what, you know, you the, the idea of kind of ecological civilization, you know, that actually we are kind of best suited in our most natural state, you know, we are interconnected. Everything is always changing. Everything has a time to die. These kind of ideas, which actually we don't live out in our working, in our business life. You know, imagine companies that actively embrace the spirit of ending things, the spirit of killing things off, the spirit of letting things die. Companies that actively embrace the interconnection between things. And I think, you know, I remember once uh, uh, we had a chairman involved with our business for for a while. And I remember we were on like a sort of board away trip thing. And uh, we were talking about the, the purpose of business. And he, you know, I guess because he also felt like he was playing out his role, you know, what's the purpose of our business was called Free State or uh, the kind of business. I remember him saying the purpose of business is to generate profit. Now, of course, legally, yeah, the purpose of the business is to generate profit. But, you know, profit is a is a secondary thing. Profit is something that is generated as a consequence of being useful, of doing good work of serving people well. And so I think, you know, I don't know that there are specific teachings that I would take from kind of about money, other than it's all a secondary thing to the quality of our relationships, the communities that we serve, our ability to kind of embrace the sort of natural flowing of life, that things rise, that things fall, that everything has a time to die, that the relationship between things is all important. Kind of money for me, profit for me, is a totally secondary thing, which happens after as a consequence almost of how you tend to all of those things so i guess it's more of a uh, a kind of um a kind of a, a sort of softer perspective which i've got from you know i guess sort of eastern spiritual teaching in its broader sense more than necessarily specifically buddhism so yes i think it's it, yeah like i said but more a, a kind of a, a kind of guide as to how best to kind of live how to live most kind of fruitfully and productively in the world and then a kind of easier relationship with money as a consequence of that Okay, Ben, you're the, the new CEO of the, the, the first Buddhist bank in the UK. Mm. What are your what are your core principles and how do you define legal your best interests under Buddhist monetary world? Yeah. So um I would I know, consult I'm, just, with... I'm, I'm provoking you because I, I, I asked know. the same question to the Prime Minister Bhutan in New York in 2012. I so I think he would, he would have a better answer. So my my slightly fudged actually answer he, no he be, didn't have it he didn't have an answer because did he not because my my point was be careful there's a trap because right if you're not sovereign if you don't control your issuance of mm-hmm. your money you don't take the one and you don't take the rupee 
from India, mm -hmm. you are sovereign and you develop a Buddhist value aligned monetary system. What does yep. that look like? What, mm. how does it behave differently than the Bank of England or any other nation mm -hmm. that has a debt-based money system? That's the challenge. From a yeah, Buddhist one that perspective. kind of has wealth creation, broadest wealth creation sort of stitched into it. Yeah, stitched into it. Mm. I was also, uh, I was listening to, so you referenced uh, Richard Richard Werner, the uh, the economist who shared some of his, and it, he was talking in that, which obviously you will be kind of very familiar with, but it hadn't, I, you know, I, I'm interested in ideas of kind of local, in ideas of kind of region, in, in community. Right. Uh, and, you know, he was talking about the, the importance of community banks, of small banks, of banks, which are only interested in uh, investing in, in supporting businesses entities organizations which exist within the small region right uh, and you know I, I think you know if i feel like in a sort of macro since we this it feels like on the so my podcast is called peripheral thinking and the idea behind that is that you know it's the ideas on the margins on on the periphery which will inform the mainstream tomorrow you know really interested in that in the kind of spirit of that idea and what what richard was talking about in that idea that you know, actually, this importance of community, the importance of kind of local, actually, it's everything that kind of big banks aren't. So uh, whilst it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't talk to the idea about how kind of genuine wealth creation is stitched into the functioning of a bank, certainly the principles and policies that you are focused on investing in community, focused on investing and kind of increasing generating wealth of a kind of, of, of people in your kind of neighborhood right. feel kind of very aligned to what it should be. And isn't that the, I mean, it, it's not that long ago, uh, Civil War era, Abraham Lincoln, um, mm -hmm. when you look at uh, the whole establishment of the Federal Reserve and, of course, the Bank of England way many centuries before that. Um, the, at that time, when Lincoln was alive, there were hundreds, thousands of local banks. Mm -hmm. They were serving local communities, a farm community. Mm -hmm. uh, they were doing exactly what banks do today, issuing loans and providing credit. Mm -hmm. and, and hopefully with some discipline saying, look, Farmer Joe, like, yeah, I like your idea, but are you sure, you know, you want to try to grow a uh, kiwi here? Because mm -hmm. kiwis don't grow in Pennsylvania. Yeah. You know, yeah. I don't think they do, but whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, so there's nothing wrong with the way banks create money. Now mm -hmm. the, the issue then becomes uh, to your point is I think we've lost sight that the bigger that companies or banks grow, the less connected they are to the community, to the local yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. even the local natural assets or, you know, I've argued that we need watershed based banks um, that can operate in the same fashion the banks do now mm. that are creating credit against real assets that, uh, that with a collective shared interest in both the risk, right. That those assets are in fact flourishing They're, mm -hmm. You know, we are doing, we are using the best of our talents uh, whatever those talents, uh, innate talents are, and that mm -hmm. creates the oxygen for a vibrant local economy. Mm -hmm. And yet we seem, and my point of this important inflection point in, in the calendar is that we are in this Jubilee year, according to the Jewish calendar, which suggests there is this moment to pause, even during a crazy pandemic, mm -hmm. to rethink and reimagine and redream a system mm -hmm. that you know, not so long ago was, was probably seemed to be operating. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. But then there's always this drive to consolidate and concentrate power into fewer hands because mm -hmm. of course, those who have the power to create money can in fact rule our lives. Mm -hmm. So now I'm talking about how do we imagine de democratizing money? Mm -hmm. so we all, we're each other's bankers. We, we share mm -hmm. the risk we share in the assets and my question to you is, do you think that's possible or does it suggest a really messy uh, scenario? Uh, messy, what in, in terms of how it may work in practice or yep. the journey from here to there? The complexity. One thing I've written in my book is, uh, so imagine that, uh, you know, we in, in our communities, we have 
we have decision makers, we have a body, a, a monetary authority locally that has to decide how much credit we need to create for our communities so that mm. let's say our goal is make sure everyone has, if they want to work, they have meaningful work and they have a minimum mm -hmm. living wage. Okay, mm -hmm. one priority. Make sure our watershed is healthy ecologically, you know, uh, et cetera. So we have a set of criteria and we now have to govern and make decisions mm -hmm. as representative of our neighbors because mm -hmm. uh, so we're the authority and mm -hmm. we determine. And this actually is something that's been ancient in, in Bali. And mm -hmm. uh, Bernard Litar, who is one of the architects of the Euro, who in mm -hmm. Future Money book, he, he wrote about the 700 year tradition in, in Bali in these little villages where they literally have a local authority who decides on uh, actually on a lot of things, but including public work. So, mm -hmm. you know, uh, gong would go off in the afternoon. And mm -hmm. that meant that every, someone from your household had to commit to some form of public work. It could be mm -hmm. trimming a hedge, painting a bench, mm -hmm. something that's in the commons. Yeah. And if you couldn't contribute your time, you could contribute in other ways. So mm -hmm. like, how would that happen? How would that work in England? Or like, mm. you know, let, let, let's imagine that actually being applied in our own situation. Um, yeah. And, and I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because in a way, like in England, in Canada, in the US, in Europe, we, we have really unlearned all of those abilities which I think are abilities that we know innately, right? So, exactly. so you do lots of work with sort of indigenous communities. Um, you know, there is there are thousands of years of kind of history of blueprints, if you like, that yeah. describe how these things kind of work. And we've just, we've unlearned those things. So, you know, to the question, can I envisage it working or would it just be missing? I, clearly I can envisage it working because I think we do have that kind of innate, you know, the, the kind of the, the, the rules for that have been kind of laid down, tested and kind of understood over thousands and thousands of years. The separate question is, you know, so how do we kind of get there? And I think, the, you know, there's a kind of interesting thing kind of going on. I was watching something earlier today, which was um, uh, Russell Brand. I don't know if you know Russell Brand, so comedian, actor, who's become yeah, sort yeah. Of a bit of a sort of a kind of, you know, spiritual kind of campaigner I, I, in many respects. I, I love Russell Brand. <laughs> and so he, and, you know, and he, and he has all the spirit of the jester, you know, which of course is a really important oh, yeah. part of the, of the debate. But I was really sort of struck. So on his YouTube channel, he's got something like uh, 4 million, 5 million something followers these days. And in fact, he was, there was a little piece that he did, which was talking about these kind of new news outlets like him, like Joe Rogan, of course, who is the, the kind of the granddaddy of that, granddaddy. that sort of space. Yeah. But, you know, if you think look, the thing that sort of struck me about it is if you take like the media landscape, just as, a, as an example, right, to sort of explore the question that you're asking, you know, we've lived for 50 years in a in a landscape of ever growing power in an in an ever decreasing number. So kind of industrial strength power, right? CNN, BBC, uh, whatever it might be. So these kind of big behemoths in the space. And of course, the, the thing that happens when there are kind of big behemoths in the space is that people get alienated around on, the outside. On the periphery, you have on the periphery. You have Joe Rogan. Exactly. Russell and Brown. so you kind of have you have these sort of people who are sort of starting to kind of operate outside of the, the mainstream a little bit, but they're growing in reach, they're growing in audience. And a lot of the ideas, you know, within that then start to, you know, in those spaces, you get the equivalence of people starting to explore new ways of governing, people starting to explore new ways of kind of interacting with each other. And sure, there's still lots of polarization and the, you know, kind of your Brexit, not Brexit, your Trump, your not Trump, or whatever yeah, the yeah. kind of polarizing issue of the day might be. But I, I think, you know, on the on the margins, on the periphery, I think we are starting to see a kind of an interest in and a yearning for new ways of interacting with each other, new kinds of democracy, because in in a sense, actually, what we're being denied by the industrialization of, of everything is kind of democracy in a sense. Right. And I kind of say that loosely. And I and I think kudos to people like us who, you know, when I started my podcast, it was really, you know, I was shamelessly connected to my book. I said, my book's just a $10 business card uh, yeah. full, full of ideas. And I'm not going to tell you everything, but, you know, you can hire me and then you can listen to conversations yeah. that matter around well-being. And 
you know, 93 shows in, it's like, this is fun. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. I don't care if only a hundred people listen. These are the yeah. conversations that, that should be happening in our kitchens and, and mm-hmm. across the fence. Right. Exactly. Uh, which is what the hundred con- conversations are, you know, the value of a hundred conversations actually is huge. It's huge. Right. And yeah. Yeah, so I, I'm I'm thrilled that we had these pioneers on the periphery of innovation, you know, that um, mm-hmm. have sprung up in spite of all the best efforts to concentrate the the story and the news, um, because the conversations that matter aren't weren't happening, and mm-hmm. we have a responsibility, I think, because we actually are talking about these things and mm-hmm. thinking, hang on, we're not alone anymore. We, you know, and yeah. And, that, that's what I, I, I'm so encouraged with the, these platforms because, um, and the, the cool thing is like, we're just sitting having coffee. Like there's no structure. I don't have a, a program agenda. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's just lovely to have intelligent, informed, um, non-bipolar conversations. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> and you know, like the, I remember when I was talking, thinking about doing, my podcast, I was talking to somebody and he, you know, he's got like big proper corporate job works for Nestle, you know, kind of giant company. And he was like, you know, what are the metrics of success for your new podcast? And actually my response, which was actually, if there are a hundred people who are interested, listening and engaging, then that is a 100% win for me. And, and I think, you know, the reason why it's interesting, like just the questions we, we spoke a little bit before Christmas and you were, you kind of planted a loads of really kind of inspiring kind of little worms in my head around money. And then that, that was, that was, that was kind of, that was fodder that I took to Christmas. So my 13 year old nephew, my kind of friend's children who's 21, all of them getting the same questions around money. Uh, and so, you, you know, whether there's a hundred people listening or a thousand people, actually, it doesn't make any difference because if, if, if 10% of those people take a seed, an idea, which comes as a consequence of the conversation and they offer that seed, that idea in the form of question or whatever it might be to one, two people that they meet, you know, the ripple effect of this actually is potentially really, really significant. It's so, so huge. And, you know, I want a 15 year old to pick up on the idea that, you know, you could be Vitalik Buterin, you could be the next Vitalik Buterin mm. uh, by inventing a new crypto that is beyond Bitcoin. I mean, that, that's what inspires me to, to see a 30 year old or 25 year old go, what are you talking about? Wow. I want, I'm an entrepreneur. I want to try this. And yeah, what gives me joy. It's like, you know, as you, as I get into my wisdom years, seeing mm-hmm. that energy, that youthful exuberance and entrepreneurial spirit, you know, and there again, we are hardwired to be creators and mm-hmm. we need the oxygen. That's why we need mm-hmm. the liquidity. We cannot, it's ridiculous to constrain our creativity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because when it does flourish, oh my goodness, you know, we literally have heaven on earth. It's, yeah. it's quite yeah. clear to me that it's possible. So that's what motivates me. And wow. Well, thanks. Thank you so much. This was a fabulous Even I didn't even have a coffee in front of me. That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> me neither. <laughs> Russell brand like yeah <laughs> no thank you really appreciate it really really good good to talk I've really enjoyed our conversations I really enjoyed your your podcast too um so yeah thank you for the work you do too thanks Ben have a great afternoon hopefully there's still some sunshine left and mm, not so much not so much <laughs> no, it's, <laughs> it's dark now but uh yeah thank you anyway thanks Ben Cheers. Bye-bye.